Good everyone. I'll pray before we look at this great passage together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all we've been learning from the book of Acts over these last few weeks. We thank you for the way we see the power of your gospel to change people's hearts, to bring them to faith in Jesus and to enable them to find the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ. And we thank you for this great moment in the story that we're looking at together tonight and we pray that we will be encouraged by it, that we'll be challenged by it and that we might respond to it with hearts of faith ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. That's just a, a recognised fact. People come from all over the world just to come to Sydney and just look at our city. People, if you've ever flown in on a jet, I don't fly very often, but if you've ever flown in on a plane and you're lucky enough to come in during the day and you look down and you see Sydney, you say, we are pretty lucky to live in this city. It's a pretty beautiful city. Uh, I was looking up uh, before actually our friends from France, the Konings came, I was looking up things to do with people from overseas to show them Sydney and one of the articles just said, just get them to go on a ferry. Just get them to get on a ferry and go out on Sydney. It's the cheapest thing you can do. People pay hundreds of dollars to do this in other places. You can just sort of tap your card. You don't even know it's costing you anything. When you tap your card there, go on a ferry and you get to see the most beautiful harbour in the world. It's incredible. thing is though, when you go on a ferry with Sydney people, we're just there looking at our phones. Like, you know, we're, we're there. Well, people pay thousands of dollars to come and see this thing and we don't even look at it when we're on a ferry. But for other people, it's amazing. Sydney is just one of those cities of the world people want to come to once in their life to experience. Of course, there are other cities like that. There's cities like Paris or, or London or New York. And another one of those cities, for different reasons, I think, is Athens. Got a picture of Athens coming up on the screen. Anyone here been to Athens? Few people. There you go, there you go, a few international jet setters, but uh, there we go. Uh, here's a picture of the skyline of Athens, a uh, picture of all the ruins of the famous buildings. With Athens, I think the reason you want to go there is its history, isn't it? You know, this is where philosophy, human philosophy came from. This is where democracy uh, was born. And so if you want to go and see the history, see those incredible, excuse me, old buildings that that sort of came out of, well, in our chapter in Acts today, and I hope you've got it open in front of you. Don't have it open, put your hand up so someone at the back can get you a Bible because you want to follow along. In our chapter in Acts today, the Apostle Paul has come to Athens, but he hasn't come as a tourist. Uh, you remember, he's on his second missionary journey. If we go to our map... You'll notice uh, my cheapo maps have gone and I'm using Troys now. So thank you for the feedback from those people who found my maps helpful. Uh, but now we're using Troys. Uh, but you notice there, but he's on this missionary journey. He's gone across what we would call Turkey. That's where you see the names Galatia and Bithynia there. Uh, so he's, he's gone across there. And then you remember he had that vision saying, come and share the gospel with us in Europe. And so he went across to Macedonia, the northern area of Greece, there and he's been in these cities like Thessalonica and uh, Philippi and Berea and, and wherever he went what has he done he's preached the gospel so wherever he's gone Paul has preached the gospel and remember these are places where no one had ever heard the gospel before he's there for the first time and wherever he went people became Christians and churches were established it was just this incredible work that Paul did across all these cities but you remember something else happened in every town he went to what's the other thing that happened opposition rose up and people started throwing stones at him and people started running him out of town and that's what happened and so that's what happened last week the end of last week in the town of Berea uh, and that led to him ending up in this I think the key city in Greece the city of Athens 
And you've got to understand this. Paul does not get there on a cruise ship. He doesn't get there on a holiday. He gets there because he's bundled out of Berea by friends who are worried he's going to die. So they're like, you've just got to go. Get on a ship and get yourself to Athens. His mates, Silas and Timothy, they stay behind in Berea. So Paul's now on his own and he's effectively just dumped in this town. So you've got to understand, this is a horrible situation for Paul to be in. This is a tough time. And so he sits there. If we bring it back, bring the picture back. He looks out over that beautiful skyline. But picture this, it was more beautiful when Paul was there because it wasn't ruins. This was the time when Athens was at its best. These buildings were in all their, their, their pomp. He looks out over that city. What does Paul see though? Look with me at verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. See, Paul could not admire those beautiful buildings when they were built to worship false gods, when they were built to give glory to idols rather than to the one true God of the universe. Paul didn't see a beautiful skyline. Paul, Paul didn't see the wonderful you know, abilities of human ingenuity and, and craftsmanship. He didn't even see a different culture to admire. He saw a city of lost people giving glory to idols rather than to the one true God. Paul saw a city of people without hope in this world, wasting their time, frankly, wasting their lives, arguing about human philosophy and false religions, and it grieved him to his heart, it tells us. The word there actually has the sense of anger. It's actually, he is angry on God's behalf. How can people, this is Paul's mind, how can people ignore the one true God and instead give his glory to things they've made themselves, idols? And altars. See, Paul looks out this great city, which counts itself as the height of human wisdom of that time. He looked out and he saw it through God's eyes. He saw a people lost, a people without hope. He saw a people ignoring the God who had made them, unaware that there would be a day in the future when they would be called to account. I just want to I wonder, I just want to ask you, do you look at Sydney the same way? I talked before about riding the ferry you know when you when you ride the ferry yes you see the beauty of God's creation but sometimes I sit there or I sit on a train into the city or I sit in a cafe and I just see the people rushing around and I think these people are like sheep without a shepherd I look around and see people rushing off to work rushing off to sport rushing off to study whatever it is they do I feel for Sydney what Paul felt for Athens See, I grieve for us. See, ours is a city that glorifies idolatry. Sometimes the idolatry of false religions, but more often the idolatry of greed and the idolatry of lust and the idolatry of pleasure-seeking. Our city loves false idols, loves giving the glory to idols, but then it uses the name of Jesus as a swear word. Our city delights in immorality. Our city is actually proud of its immorality. Our city calls sin good and good things sin you see if you don't sometimes look at our city and look around and just despair for it if you don't despair for people I'm worried for you because it suggests that you don't yet know Jesus if the fact that so many people in our city are lost doesn't make you grieve that there's something wrong with our heart if we look out at this great city that God has given so much to and we aren't grieved that so few people know the name of Jesus 
But the danger then is that Christians, in our troubled spirit, that we then withdraw from our city. That's the danger, that's the wrong response. The danger is we withdraw from our city, we turn inwards, we, we bunker down and say, oh, they might all be wrong out there, but we've got it right in here, in our, in our little building here. You know, I think sadly you see it when Christians stand in judgment over the city. Uh, I think you see this sadly in a lot of modern American Christianity, you know, in, the, in getting involved in politics and all that sort of thing and, and, and condemning the country and condemning sinners and seeking to impose Christian morality. That's not Paul's response. Paul's troubled spirit, even his anger, does not lead him to judge these people. It leads him to want to share the gospel with them. See, he wants them to turn from their idols. He wants them to come to know the one true God. So let's look at what he does. Come with me, verses 17 to 20. I've called this Paul offers people the true knowledge of God. Verse 17, it says, So, that is, because of what he saw, because of his grief, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. See, Paul starts with the Jews, as he always did. We've seen that right through the book of Acts. The gospel is first for the Jew. He takes it to the synagogue. But then he goes and preaches it to everyone because the gospel is for all people. And here, he, he basically it's saying he went to the equivalent of Westfield Hurstville. That's what he did. He, he just went, I'm just going to go where the people are and the people are seeking air conditioning in the shopping plaza, so I'm going to go there. That, that's what Paul did. He said, I'm going to go and talk to anyone who'll talk to me. Now, at this point, I want to draw out two important things to see about Paul and I want to draw out the responses to Paul. So come with me. First of all, about Paul. I've got a Paul's method. First thing I want to point out there in verse 17 is that word reasoned. You see it there? He reasoned with people. I love how it says that. The word has the sense of he argued with people. He discussed with people. He didn't just come and download his views. He talked to people. He argued the case. He, he answered their objections that they threw back at him. I want to encourage you. The, the gospel stands up to any objection. The gospel, there, there is no question. Sometimes when I'm uh, at the life course or I'm doing Christianity Explain with someone and they say, Phil, I don't want to rock your faith by asking this question. And I, I say, there is so little danger of that. I've heard every question there is. And the gospel stands up to every one of them. The gospel stands up to any objection someone can have. And so if you want to see people come to know Jesus... We need to be willing to answer their objections. We need to be willing to reason with them. But to do that, you need to know the grounds of your faith. If you're going to be able to answer other people, you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. That's the first thing I want you to see here is that Paul reasoned with them. But then secondly, I want you to see Paul's message was so simple and unchangeable. Look down at verse 18. It says, he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So yes, Paul reasons with people, but in the end, he has a very simple message. It's the good news about Jesus. It's the message that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the message that Jesus died for our sins. It's the message that Jesus is risen, and so he offers us the hope of eternal life. That is the good news about Jesus. But he also told them the news of the resurrection. Now, that's not... The resurrection of Jesus, though I'm sure he would have talked about the resurrection of Jesus. We, we hear the word resurrection and we think of the resurrection of Jesus. But actually the Bible tells the resurrection of Jesus is just the start of it. When he's talking about the resurrection, he is talking about that day in the future 
when Christ returns in glory and every person will be raised and every person will have to stand before God and give an account for their lives. And so some will be raised to judgment, but others who trust in Jesus will be raised to salvation. So that's the simple message he shared. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, and the truth about the future, that the resurrection day, the judgment day is coming. That's what he reasoned with them about. I just want to encourage you here, to to reason with people, you don't need a degree in philosophy. You don't need a degree in theology. You you just need to know Jesus and the truth about him. That's all you need to know. You, You just need to know the reason for your hope, is how 1 Peter puts it. You just need to know the reason for your hope, which is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Now I want to see how the people responded though. And I think you see two responses in these verses. Come with me. The first is a lot of people argued with Paul and mocked him. Look at verse 18. It says, Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, What is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? You can hear the sneer in their voice, can't you, as they, as they say it. Epicureans, without going into a philosophy lecture, Epicureans in a very basic way just didn't care about God they didn't, or, or their gods, they didn't believe in a god, in the gods. They didn't care about that. They just lived for this life. They lived for this world. Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Many modern Sydney-siders are Epicureans. I think most modern Sydney-siders are Epicureans. You don't need to say that to them. They probably think you're pointing them to the next restaurant they're going to or something. But, but the point is, that, that's our city, isn't it? That's what people live for. They just live for the moment, for the experience. The Stoics were the opposite. Stoics are more like fatalists. You know, the gods are in control. You can't change it. You can't do anything about it. Just put up with it. So Stoics would say, just deal with it. Life is hard. Put up with it. Suffer well. Stoicism is alive and well. In fact, I think often Sydney-siders are a bit of a mix of both, strangely. But even though these guys are polar opposites in their view, what they agree on is mocking Paul. So what's this nonsense you're going on? You're just a pseudo-intellectual, not like us real philosophers. Literally there, they call him a seed picker. That's the literal word. They call him a seed picker. And I think they're saying, you are just like some little bird who wanders around. You've picked up a few clever ideas, and now you think you're smart like us. You're really just a stupid babbler, is what they're saying to Paul. I want to tell you, it's really helpful to see this. Uh, Whatever people think of the gospel, the Apostle Paul is now known in history as one of the most intelligent men in all of history. You know, he he has shaped history more than anyone else, and yet they called him a seed picker when he preached the gospel. Don't be surprised when people discount the gospel. Don't be surprised when people mock the Christian faith. They did it to Jesus. They did it to Paul. So why wouldn't they do it to people like you and me? But, second response... Some other people, they don't become Christians, but they respond with misunderstandings, but they're still interested. So look at the rest of verse 18. It says, others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. So these people, they're not mocking Paul like the other guys. They just don't get it. They're sort of like, how do we fit this in with how we understand the world? It seems like he's talking about another God. You know, we follow Apollos and we follow, follow uh, Zeus and we follow all these other gods. He seems to be talking about a God called Jesus and something about the resurrection of the dead. But even though they can't understand it yet, some of them want to know more. Look with me at verse 19. 
It says, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of? For what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these ideas mean. These people are not close to becoming Christians yet. Uh, they aren't saying to Paul, what must we do to be saved? Like the guy that, that uh, Troy told us about last week. But they're intrigued. They want to know more. Again, I think this is actually really helpful for us as we seek to share Jesus with people in our world today, especially as our culture gets less and less Christianized. 20 years ago, I'm a bit older than most of you here, but 20, 20 years ago, most Australians didn't follow Jesus. It's pretty similar to today, actually. People, you always see in the newspapers, they say, oh, Christianity's shrinking. Christianity's not shrinking, just nominal Christians no longer tick, I'm a Christian, on, on the census. There's just as many people who love the Lord Jesus today as there were 20 years ago. But our culture was more Christian. And, and so people 20 years ago who didn't follow Jesus in Australia, on the whole, still knew that the Lord they didn't follow was Jesus. You know, they, they might have thought, I don't worship God, but they knew the God they didn't worship was the God you read about in the Bible. So it was easier 20 years ago to explain your faith in Jesus to someone because, because most people had the gist. They'd been to Sunday school, they'd been to youth group, they, they went to church at Christmas and Easter, they knew who Jesus was, they knew a bit of it. These days, I find, I don't know about you, but I find I talk to people and they've just got no idea. They never went to Sunday school, they never went to youth I think it's wonderful, actually. Because it means people are genuinely interested. They haven't written it off as something from their childhood like they did when I, my friends when I was sort of that age. But you see, not even to mention people who've come to Australia from other cultures, we are in a wonderful time where people just have no idea about Jesus and we can introduce them to the Lord of the universe and tell them about our Lord. But what that means is you shouldn't expect that, that, that people will be able to understand everything in one conversation, in one moment. Every so often that happens and it's wonderful, but, but actually often we are starting so far behind. People don't even have the concept of a God, let alone the idea that he would send his son to pay the price for our sin. That's why here at St George North, you'll notice, that's why we focus so much on the life course rather than one-off events like churches used to do 20 years ago. That's intentional because these days it often takes time for people to go from having no idea about God to coming to understand that Jesus is their Lord and Saviour and putting their trust in Him. Sometimes people do the life course, then they do the mortal life course, and then they come back another time and do the life course, and then they do the mortal life, and it's on like the third run-through of the life course. They go, so you're telling me Jesus died for my sins, and I need to put my trust in Him. And it's like, I thought we told you that 48 times, but... But you see, it takes time for when someone's coming from nowhere, that's the world Paul was talking to, and it is so like our world today. And I want to encourage you, it can be a real long haul introducing someone to Jesus. If you want to introduce someone to Jesus, it can take a long, long time. And you'll only persevere if you really love them. You'll only persevere if you really love them and you really know how important it is that people meet Jesus. So don't forget, not everyone mocks. Many people want to know more. Let's now turn to the final part of our passage. And this final part, verses 21 to 34, come there with me. This is actually probably, I think, Paul's most famous sermon that he's ever preached. This is probably the, the sermon people know more than any other by the Apostle Paul. So some of these people are so interested, they say, let's take Paul to the Areopagus. 
Now, the Areopagus was the place where the great debates happened. So this was where true thinkers, true intellectuals, true movers and shakers met to talk about their ideas and to, and to debate policy and make decisions for the city. Now, I love, I love how just a little bit of Luke, the writer of Acts, I love how just a little bit of his, I think, sarcasm pokes through in verse 21. Or maybe it's just my sarcasm and I'm reading into it. But anyway, look there. It says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Is that just me or is there a cynicism there? These guys just talk a lot and, and they just love new ideas and they just sort of flit around. He sounds actually a bit like me when I talk about university philosophy departments. I'm sorry if you study philosophy at university, but I won't, I won't get into my views on most modern philosophers. But I, I think Luke would agree with me. But the point here is Paul has been talking to real people at Hurstville Westfield. That's where he's been. Now they say come to Sydney Uni to the main lecture hall or come to Town Hall or come to Macquarie Street and Parliament House. Come and talk with the real leaders of the city. Now, as I say, this is probably Paul's most famous sermon, but be aware, we're only given a summary. Sometimes people read this and they say, oh, but he doesn't talk about this and he doesn't include that. I, I think that's, that's just being a bit silly. This is just a summary. Much like the Sermon on the Mount is a summary of Jesus' teaching, I think. But even the summary here is masterful. So let's quickly go through it. Come with me. First thing I want you to see is how Paul meets them where they're at. As I kept saying, remember, many of these people have no idea about God. They've got no idea about the God of the Bible. Their picture of the world is that there are lots of gods and, and you just try and keep them all happy by making sacrifices to as many gods as you can come up with. So Paul's introduction is masterful. Look at verse 22. It says, Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said... Men of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Let me see what he does there. He, he meets them where they're at. He, he finds a connection to introduce them to God. He says... We might not have much in common, but we've got this. I can see that you're religious. I can see that. I can see that you're open to the idea of the divine. But he says, but I can also see you're hedging your bets. He said, you've even got an altar to the unknown God, a sort of way of saying, just in case we've missed a God, we've got one for you as well in case you show up. So Paul says, well, let me tell you about the God you don't yet know. As I say, this is so clever. But, and this is so important, Yes, he meets them where they're at. But I find some Christians spend so long meeting people where they're at, they never get to the end point. He meets them where they're at, but as quick as he possibly can, he tries to introduce them to the one true God. He meets them where they're at, but he then makes it so clear the God he is introducing them to is not one of many. This is not another idol, another altar, another little God. This is the one true God. This is verses 24 to 31. Come with me through the rest of his talk. So the first thing he does to point them to God is he starts at the beginning. So he starts with the fact that God is the creator of the universe. Look with me at verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. See how clear he is here? You might love all these so-called gods you worship, Paul says. There's only one God, though. They're all nonsense. All these other gods, 
waste of time. Can I tell you, that is the greatest lie that Christians are tempted to believe in our modern world when people just say all religions are different roads to God. It is nonsense. And the only person who says that is someone who doesn't actually believe in any of the religions because they're inconsistent. The message of Christianity is inconsistent with Islam, it's inconsistent with Buddhism. It's just a nonsense. And Paul says it's a nonsense here. He says, there is only one God. You can't trap him in a little statue because the one true God made everything and he rules everything. And because of that, his second point from verse 25, because of that, we owe God everything. Look at verse 25. He says, Neither is he, God, served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. He says, The only reason you are alive is because God has given you breath. The only reason you can sit here and argue about your different philosophies and your different false religions is because God has given you a brain and God has given you a heart and God has put breath in your lungs. See, the point here is God doesn't need us, but wow, we need him. That's the point he's telling them. God doesn't need them, but wow, they need God. God has made us, he's given us life, we owe him everything. And so then he moves on to his next point, which is, I'm not just telling you about a God for the Jews or a God for the Greeks. This isn't just another little shrine. This isn't just another little altar to go with your 20 other gods. This is the one true God who is the God of all people. Look from verse 26. He says, from one man, he, God, has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. His point is, it's not like there is a God of the Jews and a God of the Greeks and a God of the English and a, and a God of the whatever other country you can think of. He says, no, every human being on this earth is descended from the one man God made. And God is in control of where every human being on this earth lives. But God is not distant. God is there. God doesn't hide from us. God is there waiting for you to seek him. And so if people don't know God... That's not God's fault. God wants us to seek him. He's never far away. The problem is with us. What Paul will say in other places is our sin. The problem is that we have rejected God and we don't seek him. We don't reach out to him. We don't find him. And because of that, and Paul's final point is, therefore turn back to God because he has set a day of judgment. Look from verse 30. It says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. That's our Lord Jesus. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Come back with me. Come to verse 30 again. Have a look at it again. God, the point he's making is God is slow to judge. People have been ignorant of God. God has overlooked it. But now... God has offered the answer. God has revealed himself in Jesus and God wants everyone to turn back to him and find forgiveness. See, from other parts of the book of Acts, we know that Paul would have probably explained how Christ won our forgiveness at this point. He probably would have explained the cross of Jesus. But his point here is, you have no excuse for ignorance anymore. His point is, you have no excuse. Don't keep worshipping your silly idols. 
If you're here tonight and you don't yet know Jesus, God is saying to you, there is no excuse for ignorance anymore. Don't go worshipping yourself. Don't go worshipping money. Don't go worship whatever it is that you've put in the place of Jesus. Don't do it. There is one true God. He has set a day when he will come back to judge the living and the dead. Turn back to God right now and find forgiveness in Christ. I reckon the people who invited him to speak at the Areopagus would have been regretting it at that point. They were expecting a a fun argument, a, a fun debate. But Paul says, I'm introducing you to the one true God. What are you going to do with him? And so what was the response? Our last little part. I've called it the power of the gospel. Look at verse 32. Some people began to ridicule him. Same response again. What's all this nonsense about people rising from the dead? Some people want to know more. You know, we, we want to hear more, but we, we don't, still don't know what you're talking about. But I love that after Paul walked away, some of the people got up and followed him out and said, we want to be saved. See, I love verse 34. I think it's one of the great verses. I love these verses in Acts. Look what it says. However, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So I love verses like that in Acts, because what it's saying is, while other people are mocking him and questioning him, some people there started off shaking their heads, but by the end they were nodding along. And they were saying, I want to know this Jesus, who you've introduced us to today. And that day, they found the one true God and they moved from eternal judgment to eternal life. I want to encourage you, that is the power of the gospel. And it's just as powerful, we see in Acts, it's just as powerful to save a prison guard, probably an uneducated man in Philippi, as it is here, Dionysius the Areopagite, who would have been a philosopher. And in our world, it's just as powerful to save an an uneducated person as it is the head lecturer of philosophy at a university. The gospel is powerful to save. Do not ever doubt the power of the gospel. As I close, what should we take away from this great passage? A couple of things, very briefly. The first is, I want to speak to you if you're not yet a Christian. And I want to say to you, hear Paul's challenge. God will not overlook our ignorance forever. Hear Paul's challenge. Put your faith in Jesus. If you're not ready, keep asking the questions. Keep coming to the life course. Keep talking to people. Ask your questions. Grapple with it. Do not just wander off and keep worshipping idols. For those of us here, most of us who already know the Lord Jesus, my prayer is that we would see our world, in particular we'd see our city of Sydney, the way Paul saw Athens. I pray that it grieves you to look at our city and see that there are so many people who do not know their right hand from their left hand. There are so many people, as Jesus put it, who wander around like a sheep without a shepherd. That should grieve us that people are not giving God the glory that he deserves. That's the first thing. But then I want to say to you, don't let that drive you to judgment. Don't let that drive you to turn inwards. So again, my prayer is, like Paul, it might drive us to share the truth about Jesus. See, my prayer is that every one of us would be ready to give a reason for our hope. That we'd then be ready to reason with people, to talk with people, to explain to people why we believe in Jesus. Why we think Jesus is more important than anyone or anything else. and To invite them to come to know the hope we've found in Christ. Because in the end, that is what our city needs more than anything else. 
It needs the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage in Acts. And we thank you that we have the good news of the gospel. We thank you for those who were willing to share it with us, who reasoned with us, who answered our objections so that we could find faith in Jesus. And so, Father, as we look at our city, it grieves us that so many people have no hope. And so we pray that we would have the grace and the love to share the good news of Jesus with anyone we meet. And we thank you that that gospel is powerful, powerful to save anyone. And so we pray that we might see many, many people in this great city come to know Jesus and put their trust in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.